Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I'm your host, Curveball, and today we're going to talk all things behavioral health because I am joined by Kelly. She is a behavioral health analyst. She has been working with kids with special need challenges and behavioral health issues for the past eight years in many capacities, including classroom teaching, ABA therapy, hippotherapy, and tutoring. She is also the owner of Applied Behavioral Happiness. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't you start off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, anything that you might want them to know? Certainly. So I'm originally from the West Coast and through the years made my way all the way across the country. Now I'm on the East Coast. I am based out of Wake Forest, North Carolina. I do a lot of work directly with families and kiddos in my area and a lot of virtual work with kiddos outside of it. Um, let's see, what are, what are some fun things about me? I really enjoy roller skating. I live on a farm. And I think one of the most wonderful parts of my job are those moments when you see a family and a child see the light at the end of the tunnel and go, oh, okay, we're, we're going to get there. I think those are a couple of things that, that the world should know about me. All right. So let's talk about how you got started as a behavioral health analyst and what made you be so passionate about that field. Do you have family members with behavioral health issues or was it just something that you were passionate about from the beginning? You know, it was really interesting. I, the, what led me into the field was horses. I was working at a farm in Colorado and was assigned to help a, a class that had a group of kiddos that were um, in a group home due to either gang violence or um, abuse or a, a couple different situations. And then second, there was a group of veterans that were working through some pretty severe trauma that were on the farm as well. And my original job there was just to care for the horses and help the horses through their rehab as they were working through their behavioral issues. Um, Cause I'd been training horses since I was about 13. And a lot of the animals came to us either as wild animals that needed a place to go so they wouldn't be sent to slaughter or they were abused. And then from there had, had some behavioral challenges. So matching them with these humans that also had challenges they were going through, we, we made some phenomenal progress. And in seeing that I was enjoying working with these groups, I was assigned a group of kiddos that were um, diagnosed with Down syndrome, um, autistic, let's see, cerebral palsy, a pretty diverse group of kids. And I was able to work with them to help them gain skills while working with these horses. And it was so cool. It was 
it was so rewarding because I, I already loved working with horses and I knew I loved working with kids, but I had no idea that kids with developmental challenges would, would bring so much light to my life. And that was just me coming from a place of, of ignorance and not having the, the exposure to enough amazing people in this world. So to, to have that, that moment in my life to really recognize the beauty of the diversity in our world was, was truly life-changing. And I recognized that although I had really good horse skills, I had years and years of experience, I didn't feel like I had enough experience to continue working with these kids without having more behind me. So I decided, well, what, let, let's see what sort of jobs are out there. And I found a job in behavior analysis. And I'll tell you what, they didn't want to give it to me. They, they were adamant that, that I was, um, cause I had a master's at the time that I was a little overqualified for entry level. They weren't quite sure about my experience. Like she's worked on farms and a little bit in schools and I don't know. So I went to the office and I, and I sat in the front room and I said, you know, when, when they are available, I'd love to speak with the manager or owner, what have you. And I stayed there, <laughs> I stayed there most of the day and, they, they finally said, you know what, we are impressed by your moxie. Let's talk. And I know that, that people say those, those things don't happen anymore, but I assure you they do. If, you, <laughs> if you're willing to go, you know what, I, I genuinely would like this opportunity and respectfully, I'll, I'll wait until it's here. Um, sometimes it comes up and in that case it did. And that's what got me started in the field and I haven't turned back. Well, I know my son, he was diagnosed on the autism spectrum and he has attention, ADHD as well. So I know that you have kind of a different philosophy with your company. So talk about your company and the philosophy that you have, because all of the treatment that I've been able to get for my son, we had to have medical records. We had to prove it, but that's not necessarily the the case for your company. Can you talk about your company and about your philosophy? Absolutely. So at Applied Behavioral Happiness, what I decided to do was go what would happen if I took all of the kiddos and all the families that needed some support that had these behavioral challenges that I've been working with for years and years. And I said, I, I don't care if you have a diagnosis or not, you need the support. Let me be here for you. And the reason I got there is because I was working. I had worked at a number of different companies where I was both on the direct care side. So working directly with families and on the administrative side, either doing hiring training, um, scheduling, all those different things. And especially in scheduling, I'd get calls from parents who are desperate for support and I'd have to tell them we can't help you because your child doesn't have the right paperwork. They don't have the right diagnosis. They don't have the right diagnosis from the right kind of person who gives that diagnosis. Um, and we were, we were set up for billing insurance only. So I went, okay, what if, what if there was a company that you didn't need to have a diagnosis we would work around your budgets and your timeframes and make sure that the amount of time your child needed, it didn't matter what your budget was, they would get that amount of time. You would just pay for the result, not for the time taken. So we can take as long as your child needs. And you know what, what could that look like? And I started putting it together in April of 2019 and really got it rolling beginning of 2020, which is a great time to start a business, by the way. If you could go back in time, beginning of 2020, it's a winner of a time, but you know, it's, it's been, we've made it work and we've continued 
to find our safe ways to, to serve these kids. And it's really been an amazing experience to be able to kind of fill that niche. So, so let me just kind of ask, cause I know my son has weird behaviors to some people, but when you tell them he has autism, they're like, oh, okay. So without diagnosis, after the, the family meets with you to get their needs met, do you have them to go get a diagnosis? Because I mean, if you don't know what your child has, a lot of times it looks like, oh, this is just a bad child. He doesn't want to mind. And I know he was having issues and nobody knew what was going on with him until he did get that diagnosis. And then we, we know, oh, okay, we know what path and what treatments or what, or what research we need to do as a family to kind of understand his condition and be able to help him. So how is it? for these families, if they don't have the diagnosis, they don't know what the research, they don't really know what's going on. And, and how can you also figure out too without a diagnosis? So there's two things that I do. The first is because I've got a really qualified staff with a lot of years experience um, between all of us, we've got over 20 years experience, both in working in diagnostics and working with different populations um, and working across the field and others we are able to often go, Hey, we collaborate with these psychologists. Let's, let's work on making sure that we rule that out. Um, we also will ask that they get the okay from a pediatrician to get our services. Like, Hey, is there anything else that could be causing these behaviors? Some things that can cause really extreme and odd behaviors are constipation, ear infections, yeast infections, uh, allergies, all these sorts of things can, can affect behavior really severely. And we need to rule those out first. If I've got a kiddo that is showing very few signs of any diagnosable thing, for lack of a better word in this moment, then what I'll do is I will tell the parents, you know, here are the psychologists that we work with. You are more than welcome to go to them to get a diagnosis, but we're happy to work on the behavior immediately or after or whatever works for you. Because part of what, what we do in behavior analysis is we go, how do we change the environment to create success for this child? So regardless of diagnosis, I can look at the environment and go, okay, this child is, is wanting this. How can I set this environment up to help them succeed in getting that in the most respectful and kind way possible? So while the diagnosis is extremely helpful, and you're absolutely right that we need to be able to research. We need to be able to know what's going on and to understand more deeply the neurodiversity of, of the child. There's a lot of things behaviorally that we can work on before or after, um, or if a diagnosis is never achieved. Speaking of that, talk about the therapies that you participate in, the hippotherapy, the ABA therapy, and kind of give a breakdown of what each of them are. I have heard of ABA. My son has been through that before. Unfortunately, the area that I'm living in right now is not too great for that. It's a little bit mm -hmm. harder to find, but talk about the other therapy, the hippotherapy, and just break ABA down for parents who might not understand or know, because I didn't know about this stuff until I actually did the research and got with the professionals like you who do know. Absolutely. So hippotherapy is um, equine assisted therapy. So horse assisted therapy. And I worked in that, as I said, that's kind of how I fell into the field. And then since then 
I've had the opportunity to collaborate with um, different hippotherapy um, what is it called? Physical therapy that is also equine assisted. So not full hippotherapy, but uh, physical therapy on a horse, as well as occupational therapy on a horse. And as a behavior analyst, I've been able to go in and help them make their their sessions better and more effective for the the people because it wasn't just kids in that case, we, we worked with um, several um, elderly people that had been through different brain traumas as well, but to help them reach their goals and uh, move forward more effectively. Now, ABA therapy is the basis of what I do, specifically at Applied Behavioral Happiness. We provide what I call deliberately creative ABA because we take ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis, and we make it as kind and as loving as possible while maintaining a high degree of efficacy through everything that we do. And when you're looking at ABA, what you're looking at is the science of behavior, which was originally like the, the, the big godfather of, of behavior is going to be Skinner, um, who studied rats and pigeons to figure out what is the basis behind why behaviors occur and why they continue to occur, why they stop and why they suddenly reappear. And then the applied side is how do we take that science that came from a lot of this animal research and how do we apply it to helping people have better lives? And it really can be a, an absolutely beautiful science because you can make amazing changes in your life and you can help all different kinds of people with all different kinds of challenges to be able to reach heights that they never thought they could or that the people around them didn't immediately see as a possibility. And one of the things that we've decided to do, again, is to take it and make it as, as gentle and as consent-filled as possible. And everything we do is play-based. Everything we do, um, the kids get to say if they don't want to do it, no problem. You don't have to. Um, everything we do, parents are allowed to join every single session, no matter what. Um, it's really been an interesting way to model classic behavior analysis um, into more of a, a mainstream sort of um, application. And I'm more than happy to go deeper into what ABA can look like in other facilities as well. Yeah, please do. Because see, when we had our son in ABA at a, at a facility called Heart Springs here in Kansas, they really didn't want the parents in. They, they allowed you to watch through a window or, you know, so you can see what's going on because they felt like, well, the kid's going to do what they're going to do with the parents, but we want to get them alone so we can maybe bring them out of their comfort shell or we can see their behaviors by ourselves versus with the parents around. So dive deeper into that and what it does look like at other facilities in your experience. Certainly. And there, there is a time for like, Hey, mom and dad, this child really enjoys your attention and we can't work on anything else because they'd rather, you know, sit and snuggle with you. Let's see if we can help them be comfortable um, working without you in the room. I definitely won't, won't speak down to that. Um, it's just a different style. And, and there are certainly times when we have these discussions with parents as well, but it's not often. 
So there's two big types of ABA that you're going to see out in the world. You're going to see what's called DTT and NET, and that's oversimplifying dramatically, but those are a good way to conceptualize the two main things you're going to see in ABA. So DTT is discrete trial training. And what you're going to see is a lot of work at a table. Uh, you'll often see a lot of flashcards. So trying to match different things, trying to um, work on really definite and precise skills. You might see a token board, which is a tool for showing progress and helping someone understand how close they are to reaching their end goal. And um, quite often a, a tangible reinforcer. So something like, hey, if we if we complete all our work, we can go play with those blocks or let's have some iPad time, something like that. On the NET side, that stands for natural environment teaching or training again. And what we're going to see on that side is a little bit more, let's play and let's sort of sneak the teaching in. And there's pluses and minuses to both. Of course, if you've got a kiddo that absolutely cannot sit at a table and just is not at a place to tolerate that yet. We're not going to force them to sit there. That would be that'd be incredibly cruel. Let's see what we can do to start helping them be comfortable sitting on a table and we can start teaching in a little bit more of a naturalistic way. And on the other side, if you've got somebody who's just super rigid and only is able to work on certain skills when they're sitting at a table, well, how can we help them be comfortable working in a more natural place and bringing these skills out into the world. And the big thing for both of those in the end is how do we generalize these skills? How do we take these skills and make sure that it's not just right here, just with this person, just this time on a Tuesday? How do we make this skill go across their whole life and be, be useful at all times? So if I was going to, as I said, conceptualize ABA really, really simply, um, the types of ABA you'll see, those are the two different categories I would put it in. And a lot of those categories or both those categories are familiar to me because I even know in my son's class, they'll do a schedule or a, a token system like that, even in his school. Not only do you do the ABA side, you are also a researcher. You've personally conducted research. So why don't you go through each type of research that you have conducted and presented and your findings and how this research is still progressing along today as we speak. Absolutely. So the, the type of research that I'm involved in is called applied research. And that means that I am using the data that I'm collecting while helping people better their lives with the highest intention of making sure that their lives are bettered through it and not the highest intention of proving something. So if, if my intention was proving something, then if they started to fall behind, I would be more concerned about, hey, let's let's get the data on whether or not this works more than I'd be worried about, are they doing okay and are they making progress? So because I'm on the applied side, I'm more worried about um, the kids and the families making progress. And then I happen to be able to take the data to, to help the world, world of behavior analysis um, and beyond learn a little bit more about what we're doing. So my first big research project, um, I was working with an elementary school child who was having a lot of trouble with math. And we were able to take writing of numbers and put them into little squares. So kind of like a, a giant graph paper where the squares, instead of being quite small, were an inch by an inch. 
and practicing first, just can we write our different numbers and stay within these squares? And then can we write these different numbers and stay within these squares when we're writing a math problem? And then can we write these different numbers, stay in the squares, have it be a math problem, and then solve it? And we saw a massive increase in the accuracy of this child's math and arithmetic problems because they were, they were able to see everything. It wasn't all jumbled on top of itself. It, it created organization. From there, we were able to start shaping those squares down and getting to a place where we were working on classic graphing paper. So that way we could, we, we could work within the classroom and not have that friend stick out. We wanted to make sure that we gave them a tool that they could use that didn't make them sit different from their peers in the end, that they could use a tool that everyone could use. And we had great success with that. The next project that I worked on was, um, I'm gonna actually skip that project because it, it leans into a couple others. I worked on one for um, teaching kiddos how to choose their communication methods. And this specifically, I've, I've spoken about this on a couple other podcasts, was from the research of Dr. Kunavatna, who I had the pleasure of working under at, a, at another company. And we were looking at um, replicating some of her findings in her work with adults who didn't have a communication method. And her big thing, which I just, I love this to, to the moon and back is that we shouldn't be telling people who don't have a communication method. Well, you know, you're currently not able to speak with your mouth. Therefore mm, you're going to use picture exchange. I decided for you how you're going to speak because there's a serious consent issue there. This is a human and they have every right to decide how they are most comfortable communicating with the world. So how do we, how do we make sure they have that ability to, to tell us this is how I want to, to communicate with you. And she and her fellow researchers found a wonderful um, method for partially teaching a couple different ways of communicating and then testing for which was preferred. And she had wonderful success with the adults she was working with. We were able to bring it in with a small child, same sort of um, situation where this, this child did not have any form of communication beyond um, pointing and referencing and pulling you to things, um, but didn't have any, any verbal vocal words um, and didn't have any other way of communicating uh, wants and needs. And we went through the same process where we taught just a couple different ways to, to speak. Would you like to talk by giving us a picture? Would you like to talk by showing us a sign from sign language? Would you like to talk by pushing a button on an augmented device? Different things like that. And they had a very, very strong preference for one. And it wasn't the one we were expecting, which is just so beautiful to me. Because if I would have just gone, ah, this is, this is a great way to talk. This kiddo probably wants to talk this way. I would have completely been wrong. And I would have assigned a speaking method to a human. And it just, it, it blew my mind what, what a beautiful moment of consent that was um, from that child. The next group of um, pieces of research that I have been involved in have been looking at creativity and um, creativity with staff and how when we train staff in different um, methods of creativity, different tools, how does that change how they interact with the people they're working with? And how does that change how those people are progressing? And across a number of different studies, we've been able to see that, first of all, creativity is a skill 
that it can be trained and that the research out of the creativity world is very sound, um, that, that these are behaviors that can be increased. We have found that when we increase these behaviors, we, we get reports um, from staff that they feel less burnout and they feel more ready for sessions because they don't run into that, oh my goodness, I, I have this friend I'm playing with right now and this, this child is interested in maybe two things. They don't want to invite me in and I have no idea how to play with them. Help, I'm lost and I've got three more hours to go. You know, that's, that, that really grades you down. So once they had these creativity skills developed, they were much happier as employees. And then on top of that, what we saw was the people they were serving were making more progress and showing more signs of enjoying being around them. And that just, again, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if, if you're going to ask somebody to, to make these big behavioral changes, we should be getting as much consent as possible because that. And that is the least we can do as the respectful adult in the situation. Speaking of behavioral changes, you know, my son is autistic, but his sister's not. And a lot of times, you know, because she grew up seeing her brother have certain behaviors, maybe hitting or shouting or, or whatever the behavior is, throwing temper tantrums. So I think a lot of times she plays off of him because this is pretty much what she's known. Do you see that with a lot of kids and families coming into your facility? And do you actually find yourself having to work with a sibling that might not have the challenges to get rid of that behavior? Or how does that work in your opinion? I see that a lot. So as, as behaviors are modeled, as we see things, it is, it is very, very common for us to, to then copy it, especially with kids. That's a, a huge part of learning is the ability to imitate something and, and try it yourself. And if for whatever reason they feel that that technique is working for the sibling, then of course they're going to try it themselves. So when I was working in, in a classic ABA clinic and we were billing insurance, there was really nothing we could do for siblings besides maybe some parent training. Um, but now, because we're outside of that, quite often we'll set up interventions for the entire family where every member has different things going on to set up the whole family for success. Now, it's not to say that other companies don't do that. It's to say that because our funding structure isn't based around what will insurance pay, we are able to do it with a lot of flexibility. And there are times when we'll see um, a child who has a diagnosis that allows them to access ABA services in its full capacity through insurance at another company, then the sibling will be a better fit for coming to and seeing us. And we can collaborate with that, with the company, um, with the other company that's working with the other child to make sure that the whole family is cared for. What would you say is the success rate for your company when your clients come in, they get the help they need, or do you even sometimes see that maybe you help them so well that they don't need to access any other outside services? I have the, the pleasure of saying that not only do we have an extremely high success rate, but we have an extremely high referral rate. So I have, I have not yet had with this company, a family come in with a goal that we were not able to achieve. And part of that is again, that we, we set 
our milestones and we set our goals at the beginning and we, we set our, like, this is how much it will cost. And we don't, we don't worry about how long it takes. If it takes longer then we take longer. Now there are certainly times when I've said like, Hey, is this, is this still applicable? And the family's gone, you know, not, not really. We, it kind of, you know, moved a different direction. So I can't say, you know, Oh yeah, hundred percent every time, every goal, because there are some, some times of wiggle room, but I, at this company, I can't think of, um, a single family who has not reached their goals to the level that they wanted to. Now I can think of at other companies when I had different contingencies competing with what I was able to provide. I can, I can think of a couple families in particular that I look back and go, man, I really wish that I was able to serve them more and that I had everything that they needed in that moment um, in ABA and beyond because as you know, there's there's so much more than just this moment, this behavior. There can there can be so many other things that that are contingencies within a family, within any family. And I look back and go, man, I I wish I was better for some of those families for sure. Now I know at some point we're gonna have to sit down as a family and let my son know that that he has issues, you know, or that or what his condition is, I, I would think, because that way he can understand maybe why he might be a little different in school or why he's being picked on. But my son doesn't seem to, he's in his own world. You know, he knows stuff, but he's in his own world. But how would a family present that to a child? And when do you think the time might be right for somebody to present that because I think if somebody has a disability, it's only fair for them to know as quick as possible and say, hey, we're going to get through this together. We're going to navigate it, but it is what it is. Absolutely. That is a deep question. That is a really deep question. My first thought is when the child is ready would be when I would want to present that. And I'm, I'm thinking this out as we're speaking because I actually haven't been asked this before. Um, where, where I have been asked a similar question is when I work with kiddos that are, um, that are adopted and talking about, you know, when should, we, when should we have that conversation? And the best answer that I found for that is ask people who are adopted. So I think while I can, I can give some cursory answers on that, I think the best people to ask are autistic people and go, you know, how did, how was this brought up to you? When would you have liked to have heard sooner? Would you have liked to have heard later? Was there a tool you needed before you could take this in? Um, is there um, a helpful book that we could use to talk about it? Kind of like um, the different books that are out there for kids to help them get through situations like potty training or all those different things. There's a lot of different um, resource books that can, that can provide some context for these sorts of conversations. I apologize that I don't know one off the top of my head, but now I'm very interested in finding some because I'm certain they're out there. But again, my, my advice to you would be to reach out to the autistic community and, and ask directly. I'd be more than happy to, um, provide some notes on a couple different places where you could do so. Yeah, that would be great. And I was able to ask that question because I have a disability myself. I'm blind. And I know when, when my mom sat me down and kind of explained, okay, 
this is why you're different and, and here's how it is. So this is why I was able to ask that. So let's talk about, it seems to be a high level of people with disabilities or behavioral challenges. And, and it seems to be rising in kids. Why do, why do you think that's the case? Or do you believe that's the case in your opinion? It's another very deep question. So I can give you my opinion as, as a professional on the edge of the ability to give a true professional opinion here. So because I don't do diagnostics, I can't give like, oh yes, my, I'm diagnosing more. Um, because I don't follow the data of diagnostics, I can't give that sort of professional side. What I can tell you is, especially with the addition of COVID into everyone's lives, when stress increases, kids take that in and they don't always know what to do with it. It's, it's, a, it's not a good feeling. And when I've got this bad feeling and I don't know what to do with it, quite often it comes out behaviorally. And usually not the pretty kind of behavior, usually the frenetic running around, running into walls kind, or the snapping over nothing, or the hours-long tantrum or full-blown meltdown over something that never would have bothered me before. So in the short term, I definitely see that and I can speak to that. For autism specifically, I know that changes in the diagnostic, specifically in the DSM-5, increased the diagnosable uh, population. And that definitely created an increase in the number of people who were diagnosed simply because they were now eligible to be diagnosed. The other thing that I think we should think about when we're having this conversation is what happened to a lot of people who had disabilities 50, 40, 30 years ago. And, you know, in, in the 30 year realm, we're, we're pulling out of this, but not completely. They were, were quite often uh, sequestered, that they were they were hidden within homes. They were sent to institutions. And, you know, it's interesting talking to, um, talking to a, a lot of the grandparents of the, the kids that I have now, because they, they say things like, oh, well, we never saw this. Well, that's because you weren't allowed to. It's because there was there was segregation within the 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 neurotypes. There was a a very clear, you know, if you don't if you don't fit this mold, you're not allowed to be a part of of general society. And now we have reduced the number of inpatient facilities and gotten more into um, integrated group homes and different types of support that allow people to to be a part of the world and to be seen and gosh darn it they deserve it and it's a beautiful thing to know again that that we have more more neurodiversity in our world and as i said early on in our conversation today it was because of my my lack of being able to see all the different kinds of people in this world even you know i'm i'm in my 30s even just growing up in the 90s and early 2000s that I think really affects how we see um, diagnostics today. Are there any other upcoming projects that you and your staff are working on? I know you have a lot of information. I'm surprised. Do you have your own podcast or have you ever thought about writing these concepts down in a book? 
I have thought a lot about um, putting together some books. We, we're doing a lot of printables and developing some eBooks right now so that we can get these tools out to parents. I, I always tell parents, this: the science isn't mine. The science is everyone's and no one should intimidate you with it. So if you're looking at behavior analysis, if you're looking at ABA services and somebody comes up to you and is telling you, oh yeah, well, you know, we, we use this kind of science with this and that and, and try to intimidate you with their, with their words, know that that science is yours as well. Um, and that you're welcome to call me, um, or email me and have it translated <laughs> because you deserve a translator, but I digress. Some other things that we are working on, we are providing support for kids that are in virtual school right now and are having a really hard time behaviorally at home getting that done because that is hard. That is a huge ask for kids. Yeah, my We son, are working on um, making sure that kids are ready in uh, kindergarten behaviorally again, not just academically. And gosh, <laughs> so many other things. <laughs> okay, so... Let me ask you this. I know having a kid with autism, it can be very taxing. And sometimes, you know, you have to work on your patients and you have to tell yourself that they have a disability. So what advice would you give parents, especially in these times? Because when they were doing virtual school, I was working. Mama was at home and it was hard to get my son to settle down enough to get his work done. So what advice would you give parents, not only during these times, but just living life to be able to get through it and to make it through some of the maybe odd behaviors or tough times? What advice would you give parents out there with behavioral challenge kids? My first piece of advice, and this this will sound incredibly cliche, is is make sure you have a support system. And I know it's been said a million times before, and it'll be said a million times again. Um, I I know from working with hundreds of families that you are the strongest people in the world. Um, that you are raising the most incredible humans, and that you deserve the support that you are currently either scared of asking for or don't feel you deserve to ask for or maybe just haven't felt like it's been the right time to ask for. You're just not ready to ask for it yet. You deserve that support. You deserve that help. And reaching out to people who have free resources to make sure that you know, you've, you've got that support without busting your budget is, is a great place to start. Like I send out weekly free tips and tricks. Um, I, I do free consultations for everyone. And I try to make sure that on, you know, our Facebook and Instagram, we're constantly putting out things for people because again, you, you deserve that support. And if that's the little bit that we can do, you know, we're going to try to do it in these times, making sure that, Again, this is terribly cliche that, that you're able to take some time for you and able to have moments of mindfulness throughout the day really can make a big difference, especially when you're talking about that patience. Um, one of the big things I tell parents, um, I have been telling them even more recently is create a list of things that you absolutely for your family, your family culture, you're following through on and create a list of things that you're willing to say, you know what, not worth it, letting it go. And those lists could contain anything because it's, it's your family culture that matters, not what, you know, the, the Joneses next door, what theirs will look like. So maybe what's for dinner 
on a Tuesday is ice cream because you know what? I'm this this is what I need for, for my mental health right now is, is to be able to do that and and to forgive yourself and even more than that to to not need forgiveness for those things. And then on the other side, because you're letting some of those things go, you're letting the the rubber balls bounce per se, you're gonna have the energy to really pull through on no, we we need to get this this homework done or I, I really need for you to help me clean this room. And we all know kids with challenging behaviors, those are two, and there's many other very triggering situations quite often where you're going to really need a lot of patience to pull through. So choosing your patience wisely and, and getting yourself in a place where you're letting go of the ones that don't matter or that you can allow to, to kind of slide for now will really help you, um, allocate your patience where it's needed. Well, I know you mentioned giving out free tidbits on your social media and website. Let's go ahead and throw out your social media link or your social media links and your website so people can connect with you and get those free tidbits and also talk about newsletter. You know, a lot of people get stuff through email that that might be beneficial as well. Sure, certainly. So I'll provide you with a, a link to um, get onto my my weekly list. I only send one email a week because I'm not interested in spamming anybody, but you're welcome to reply to it with exactly what you want. In the next one, I've had a couple people say, hey, I want a whole blog post on um, creating checklists because my kiddo, I just have such a hard time with, say, showers or um, bedtime routine. And I really just need help creating that checklist. Great. We'll create that blog post. We'll send it out and we'll make sure that you get all the stuff you need. So it's, it's not a, you know, you just get a newsletter. It's, it can be very interactive for social media. You'll find us at applied behavioral happiness on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn are three biggies. Um, we're also on Alignable and a couple other places, but the Facebook and Instagram especially are going to be, you're going to find a lot of good resources there. And then our website is www.appliedbehavioralhappiness.com. And as I said before, you're welcome to email me. Um, I'm Kelly, K-E-L-L-I-E at appliedbehavioralhappiness.com. Well, I know I definitely will be following you on all platforms Anything else you would like to say? Any other advice or tips before we go? Hmm. To, to have so much freedom can be so hard to use in a moment. I'm just so glad that you had me here and that you are, you're so open about your experience and how it relates to the conversations we're having. I love being able to have these, these really open conversations about difficult topics. And I'm, I'm absolutely honored that you allowed me to have this with you. Well, one final question for all the parents like me, when, when I first started and still don't know it all who are out there and have no idea where to turn, look, no idea in their, in their community, wherever they are to even find about resources, whether they're free or paid. Is there any, sites or can you give any advice hey go here um, select your state your city and they'll give you the resources that they have available certainly so the the first place i'd go if i was looking for a behavior analyst which is what i do that's someone who has studied in um the science of behavior and has a master's degree as well as an additional 
certification and between 1,200 and 2,000 um, supervised hours working in the field and approved by the um, Behavior Analyst Certification Board. I would go to that website, to the Behavior Analyst Certification Board, because on there you'll be able to click in and find an analyst, and that'll be by location, by name. Um, you can find me on there. If you put my, my name in, you'll see my location, you'll see my certification number, um, and you'll you'll be able to check credentials, but it'll also tell you what's, what's in your area. That would be my first place to go, and that's www.bacb.com. Com. And again, that stands for the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Absolutely. And ladies and gentlemen, that website will be in the show notes. And make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review after listening. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Kelly Siphon. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. dream.